You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hey guys. So, for those of you who've been listening to us for the past couple of weeks or, or even months, You'll know that we typically start each episode with a trailer, and what this trailer is, it's a chance for us to use some sound design, some texture, quotes, and clips to try and bring you into the story. You know, we're about telling stories, and we want to transport you to a different place, to transport you to the story, because that's what we're about. Here at Real Vision, we want to tell you an interesting story about the financial markets, but today, we don't need to do that, because we're not telling you a story. And we're not telling you a story because we have a hedge fund legend on the show. Now, the word legend gets thrown around a lot. But for us, we make no exaggeration when we say that we have an absolute legend with us. But hold that thought in your head, because it gets better. Now, we all know an interview is only as good as the interviewer. And so imagine if one of the greatest hedge fund managers was interviewed by one of the legends in the industry as well. And that's what we have this week. And best of all, we get a front row seat. So this week on Adventures in Finance, Kyle Bass interviews John Burbank. All right, James, hit it. Also coming up in this week's episode, we have our traditional long short segment where Aaron and I discuss the good and the, of course, not so good stories of the week. The assets under management GDXJ represent around 20% of the $30 billion universe of uh, junior miners. What that's resulted in is the index having to now think about expanding the possible universe of miners to include in the index. And so in this sense, I'm short GDXJ, but I'm actually long the miners that are going to be included in the index eventually. My short this week is Netflix, uh, which announced their results yesterday and Wow, man, there were some numbers in there that just defy belief. When we all know what the stock's done, it's, it's just been one of the best performers uh, in the US for a few years now. Um, but what really caught my eye was the fact that they have $14.5 billion of commitment to produce original content. And finally, in a favorite segment of ours called Things They Got Wrong, we speak with a market expert about something they got wrong and ask them to share a pearl of investing wisdom with the benefit of 2020 hindsight. Yeah, so this week we spoke with the uh, extremely energetic John Netto, founder of The Protean Trader and author of the new book Global Macro Edge. And John talked about what he got wrong in his preparation. I'm Grant Williams. I'm Aaron Chan, and this is Adventures in Finance. So today is April 20th, 2017, and welcome to episode 12 of Adventures in Finance. And to my right is producer James. How are you, James? Not too bad, Aaron. How are you doing? Well, it's, it's, it's been a really interesting day, an interesting couple of uh, 12 hours. Um, the UK called a snap election. Did you hear about that? Was it like snappy? No, it wasn't snappy. It had nothing to do with Snapchat. But uh, a decision that was not made snappily is Grant Williams coming back to the Cayman Islands Grant, for the first week out of 12 weeks, I haven't had to ask you where you are in the world. That's yeah, you're amazing. Right. I'm, I'm right here, which means that to my left is James, <laughs> which is perhaps not ideal, but here we are. I think the average age in the room just rose about 50 years. I think it's, it's funny how we're also arranged in, in ascending or descending age. 
wonder if that happened by why don't we why don't we move off the age discussion and get on to this week's podcast i think that's the smartest move but graham before we dive right in for those of our listeners who are paying attention you may have noticed that we didn't have one of james's elaborate soundscapes in the beginning yeah i was a little bit disappointed about that i'm actually a little sad for you james because you have this really cool looking got blue lights purple lights it's like this ufo looking keyboard on your desk i brought it in specially to use and then you guys give me nothing james i've told you we are not having the beverly hills cop theme tune in the podcast (laughs) was that on the company's budget no all right well we didn't have a soundscape this week for a very good reason because we have cal bass and john burbank yeah uh, carl went to san francisco to interview john um, and what we ended up with was a conversation between two real investing giants that just contained so much insight um, and so much incredible depth of thought. We thought it'd be a great chance to uh, run through some of that with you guys today. Yeah, I can't say how many times I've watched that interview. But before we get to that, first up is our long short segment where Grant and I go through the good and not so good stories of the week. Grant, do you want to start or should I start this one? Because my long and short, uh, I kind of took this from your book. Ah, I combined you them. the old two for one, are you? Yes. Uh, Well, why don't I start with my short this week? My short this week is Netflix, uh, which announced their results yesterday. And wow, man, there were some numbers in there that just defy belief. And we all know what the stock's done. It's it's just been one of the best performers uh, in the US for a few years now. Um, But when reading these reports, I mean, the company missed their net ads for streaming um, domestically. They missed their net international streaming ads. Their forecast uh, EPS is uh, $0.08 below where it was before. Um, but what really caught my eye was the fact that they have $14.5 billion of commitment to produce original content uh, baked into their numbers. What's which their market is, cap? Uh, you know what? I'm not even sure what the market cap is now. It's, it's astronomically above where it should be. That's ridiculous. Um, but they burned $422 million in cash in the first quarter, uh, and they expect to burn a total of $2 billion just burning it in the, uh, for this year. Um, and a couple, a couple of quotes from this, the thing which were just amazing. Um, the uh, CFO said that uh, they want to grow their operating margins slowly so that they can spend enough to quickly grow revenue and original content. Uh, they anticipate free cash flow to accompany, uh, sorry, I beg your pardon, they expect negative free cash flow to accompany their rapid growth for many years to come. Now, you know, if you've bought into this thing, it's extraordinary. But the, the thing <laughs> to make me laugh at the end um, the silver lining, according to um, the Leicester shareholders, was that uh, they continue to promote their tie-up with Adam Sandler. And uh, this is what they said. Just ahead of the release of our third film from Adam Sandler, Sandy Wexler, we announced the renewal of our deal with Sandler to premiere an additional four films exclusively on Netflix around the world. We continue to be excited by our Sandler relationship and our members continue to be thrilled with his films. Here we go. Since the launch of The Ridiculous Six, Netflix members have spent more than half a billion hours enjoying the films of Adam Sandler. Now, I, I took the liberty of going to Rotten Tomatoes to, uh, or Rotten Tomatoes, depending on where you're listening <laughs> to this through, to get a couple of reviews for Sandy Wexler. Uh, and a couple stood out. Here's the first one from The Hollywood Reporter. As with almost every Sandler vehicle, this is an adoring ode to a lifelong man baby who mistakes his half-assed excretions for art. Uh, there were a couple of even less complimentary ones. Once again, the actor Exquisite is pathetic. Throws. Once again, the actor is pathetic, and the movie is gross. And just when you thought Sandler couldn't embarrass himself any further, he drops the laughless mess known as Sandy Wexler. Now, this is the plus side for Netflix's There's numbers. A plus that they side? have. They, well, they've doubled down on this relationship. So, 
Me, I don't see anything in there that makes me want to be long Netflix. So that's my short for the week. Wow. Uh, Sorry, know, I went on quite a long time. Though, no, <laughs> but but it is one of those stories that you read, and and if, especially if you dive into the details, it just it's, leaves it's you kind of astounding. You know, it it speaks to the ETF phenomenon. It speaks to herding. It speaks to all the things that we know on a macro level are wrong with markets right now. Um, and I suspect when we get any kind of correction, that uh, Netflix is going to be the first one that's taken out the back and hit with a stick. So what you're saying there, Grant, is that Netflix has released two Adam Sandler movies in the time it's taken for me to wait for the next House of Cards installment. That's crazy. Well, hey, listen, half a billion hours of, of watching Adam Sandler movies. But who cares? I mean, who cares about those numbers? You and I get to binge on these amazing films and, and shows that Netflix has. You know, you, you mentioned the markets. That's and all fine. That. Hey, look, buy a subscription. Just don't buy the shares. Yeah, I guess. But I think what it also speaks to at a societal level is just this, I mean, who in their right mind would binge or, or watch that much Adam Sandler well, just, just, just think, James, put your hand out. Just think what benefits the world may have missed out on in that half a billion hours. You know, any one of those people that added up to a half a billion hours could have you know, invented a cure for something, like yeah. you know, bad production, for example. Yeah, but I don't think people who are binging on Netflix are in any position to cure anything. That may be a good point. Anyway, that's my short for the week. What's, uh, I guess you give us your long and short. Yes, yeah, so I'm going to do the two for one. And this story, it's interesting because it weaves together the indexation, so the passive money uh, story and also gold miners, which is a, a favorite of of uh, mine. You are owning that space. Favorite. Yes, and so since 2016, this is actually about the GDXJ um, mm-hmm. ETF. Which I is thought the, about this story. I'm glad I didn't take it. Yeah, I, I just had to jump on this one because it's fascinating, really. Um, you know, being an in, past investor in GDXJ, but uh, since 2016, the beginning of 2016, um, the assets under management have more than um, tripled from 1.5 billion to 5.5 billion. To the point where now the GDX, the assets under management in GDXJ represent around 20% of the $30 billion universe of uh, junior miners. Now that oversteps the SEC's uh, concentration limit of 20% ownership, especially if you're a passive investor. And what that's resulted in is um, GDX, the index having to now think about expanding the the possible universe of... of um, of, of miners to include in the index. And so in this sense, I'm, I'm short GDXJ, but I'm actually long the miners that are going to be included in the index eventually, because uh, according to certain reports, they are going to start investing in significantly larger com- uh, companies. So increasing uh, the size of it from around 30 billion to seven, 70 billion. And BMO even said that GDXJ would add roughly 18 new components uh, in June when they rebalance the index. Uh, and they'll cut in half some of their other holdings, uh, about $3 billion worth. So for those, uh, I mean, if, if you want to do the research and, and see which companies might be included in the index uh, come June, might be a good good long and uh, maybe short the index. Yeah, look, it's, it's, uh, this is fascinating to me on many levels. I mean, I, I gave a presentation in December of 2015 called Nobody Cares, just talking about how little it would take of inflows into this sector to really move things in the right direction. And this is this is the first sign that that's happening. Uh, it also speaks on the on the negative side to the problems with passive management and ETFs. Right. And we are going to start to see this happen, I think, where the ETFs get too big for the market, um, and particularly the ones that are in uh, illiquid underlyings, and, and more dangerously, the fact that the, we have these triple leveraged ETFs. So you saw this week that the direction of cancel creation of the, of the triple long um, gold miners uh, ETF for that exact reason. We're just, we're just reaching the bounds where they can't physically create these things because the liquidity isn't there. Yeah. And that liquidity problem um, 
is going to come home to roost, I, I expect. Uh, that just leaves my long. So we'll, we've been kind of we've taken a lot of time walking through this. So I'll just quickly. My long um, is the U.S. Treasury market, and it's very simple. the The macro data is starting to deteriorate. The the hard data is starting to catch up with the soft data, um, and I see so many of these jaws charts as as Steph Pomboy soft calls data, them, hard you data. See the, where you yeah. see that just the jaws open up, and invariably these things tend to catch up with the high one, fall into the low one, and that tells me that we're in for a a period of some bad macro data. I think people are going to want to own treasuries again. Yeah. Well, if you've been following the podcast, uh, we did the reflation story a couple of weeks back and you'd already be hip to the the bond trade perhaps. So <laughs> listen, the, the, I don't want to take credit, but at, at, at my age, the word hip is normally followed by the word operation. So let's just try and keep that out of it, shall we for now? All right. Sounds good. Well, Grant, let's move on to the commentary feature for this week. And this week we have a masterclass between two legends in the hedge fund industry. We have uh, Cal Bass's interview with John Burbank that was published back in March of 2015. That's over two years ago. I mean, this is before I even knew about Real Vision. But if you know, if this was a short book or some kind of article, I would have tons of annotations, highlights, and dog-eared pages. It's a truly timeless interview for the intellectually curious investor and you know anyone who wants to learn from the best in the business. Yeah, these these two guys really are uh, best in breed. And and you know, not only are they super smart money managers, but they're just terrific guys. You know, very generous with their time. And uh, I, you know, I, I obviously saw the footage at the same time everybody else here at Real Vision. I wasn't there to, to uh, when the recording happened. And it was just fantastic to see two guys with this level of intellect sit and talk. And, and I, you know, I was fascinated by the questions that Kyle asked because we, you know, we didn't guide him in any way. It was basically, hey, you, you, the interview's yours. You ask the questions you want to ask. And so the questions were insightful, the answers equally so. Um, so let's, let's get to it. Yeah, I think you know for for the for the average investor who doesn't get access to these people normally, it's incredible amounts of information that's in one of these interviews. Not just as you say about the views on the world, but it's also about how they think about things, how they invest, you know, that the portfolio construction, all the things that really make you a good investor. And we're lucky enough to have some of the world's best investors on these on these podcasts uh, from Real Vision Television in our archives. I think it's great. Well, you and I have, have been very fortunate that we get to spend time with a lot of these guys and sit down and, and really pick their brains about the things that we want to know, what makes them great investors. And that was a big part of starting Real Vision is to try and get more people to hear that knowledge, share those ideas, and really understand what it is that makes someone a truly great investor. Yeah, I think it's an important point, Grant. The reason we started this, as you say, is we wanted to give people a broader access to actually what goes on in the financial markets. Because I think the media let many people down um, back in 2008 and certainly in the periods before that. And I think it was really crucial to us to bring all of the smartest people we knew and get them to talk freely and openly about financial markets and how they invest. I think that's been a really powerful thing. The great thing here is we've got two of the world's most famous investors, Kyle Bass and John Burbank, in conversation with each other. So it wasn't even you and I talking to them. Yeah, which is better, obviously. Yeah, obviously. Um, and what was incredible is how they approached the discussion, the depth they went into almost immediately. I think the amount of nuanced learning from this is just astonishing because these guys are super smart. They both run multi-billion dollar portfolios. They're both incredibly successful, have amazing track records and are highly regarded within the industry. So I think it's just a gem from our archives. Well, what do you say you and I shut up and we let people listen to the real smart guys talk? All right. So what I want to do, John, is I'm going to start right where I'm really interested and we can work back to where it's slightly less interesting if that's possible. Okay. I'm curious to know how, when you, when you work up to a conviction level on, on one of your 
uh, uh, most exciting ideas. How do you how do you conceptualize with your team, and how do you think about sizing a position, and how do you really make things quote count? What's a large position for you in percentage of your fund? I realize you have uh, your kind of master fund, and then you have some highly concentrated best ideas funds mm-hmm. from talking to you before. But mm-hmm. say in your in your primary vehicle, how do you how do you think about sizing both long and short kind of best mm-hmm. ideas? Blimey, that didn't take long. My first interjection. I love that Kyle jumped in immediately with a question on trade sizing. <laughs> Barely, hey, John, how are you? Straight on to, how do you size trades? I think it's clearly it was top of his mind. And I know when from running a hedge fund in my days of old that it is one of the single most important things. And everybody's terrified it's of the most it important. To me, it's the most important thing. And, and the fact that you picked that, I mean, it makes me laugh because when I interviewed Kyle again, later on it was the first question i asked him so you know it was so interesting to me that that was where you went because even the best investors always want to know is is there a better way of doing this because it is so crucial yeah and i think it's amazing that here's two really successful investors and they clearly don't know everything but they want to learn from each other and john is a master of trade sizing uh, Kyle is a you know master of other things, and so they're just trying to figure it out between them. I think it's just brilliant. Well, to, you know, to, when you when you think about what Kyle's done, particularly with the Japan trade, you know, Kyle's to me, Kyle's rational investor paradox is one of the best investment cases you'll ever hear. It's 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 a completely closed circle. There's no leaks in it, and yet it hasn't worked. And of course, I'm sure he's got sick and tired over the years of talking about Japan and people saying, "Well, you know, you were wrong." And, and obviously, you and I know that that not being right yet is not exactly the same as being wrong but he managed to stay in that trade because of how he sized it because he didn't you know he didn't shoot his bolt he was able to stay in the trade because he got his sizing right it's so crucial for people to understand i think one of the most incredible people in the world for trade sizing is stan druckenmiller he was famous for it he could run an enormous number of positions in his portfolio but when it really mattered he would be a pig as he called that's right yeah get greedy yeah that's right Anyway, let's go back to listening to John answer Carl's questions and see how that discourse continues, because it really is interesting. I think probably the most important single part of this whole interview for me. So we have three different vehicles. One is best ideas where the size of the position could go up to 30%. So that that has happened several times, but it's because I sized something at under 10 and it grew and it was able to grow. Um, and then... Um, the other two that are managed with a certain vol. I like to say that you know there are three there are three disciplines of investing. There's macro, there's bottom up, which is the American you know fundamental stock picker world, and then there's quant, which is really a a model driven risk management enhanced understanding about um, volatility and a much greater discipline in portfolio construction risk. You know what could happen without having a clue really as to what macro or bottom-up is. Um, so I hired someone in 07 who was a quant, um, and I thought quants actually started making markets different in 06. I, I just thought they started trading differently, a lot more noise. And quants had really grown from uh, 2000 into 2007, being long value, short growth. Worked every year into that. Anyway, the point is, how I understand this is really is more nuanced and developed because I've now spent a lot of time just on non-macro, non-fundamental yeah. risk understandings. And it's actually changed how I invest. So now when I think about sizing a position, I think about it 
in the traditional ways of what what things are happening in the world that's driving, let's say the macro, my macro view, mm. and then bottom up what my risk reward assessment is. But as it, potentially as important or most important is what will happen to this kind of you know security in this kind of regime that I think we'll will be in. Mm. And obviously, you learn these lessons of like owning small caps in a bear market, you know, or. Mm-hmm. Um, but ex ante, you can filter out a lot of these things, illiquidity, et cetera. Um, so all those things go into it. But I think what I've learned also is that portfolio construction of, of being diversified is not, is, is, can be a real benefit to holding these positions too. Because when things don't share common characteristics, they'll move in different ways. Mm. And a lot, of, a lot of investing now with short duration capital is the art of holding positions, you know, hedging, holding positions, if you can, because so much of what happens to price is simply liquidity moving around. It's not providing a lot of signal. It's a lot of noise. Um, and, and then, of course, you manage that according to your duration and expectations of your investors. These Chinese internet companies are the most volatile securities that we deal with, mm-hmm. not because there's really doubt about what's going on, but the, but the variety of things, the nature of it is Chinese, uh, the uncertainty, like I believe that uh, you know, things that have never happened before are what is how you make real money. Mm. Most people think in a regression of the mean way. They, they, they look backwards, extrapolate forwards, and that's what happens 90% of the time. But the signal events, the big things, the things that affect other prices are things that were not on the model, haven't happened before. Yeah. So when I'm considering that, I'm trying to consider no matter how good an idea you, it could do. I mean, I, what I've experienced is being ahead of a lot of trends, and and ahead means wrong for a while. Well, it could, yeah, it, it could be, but also when you're dealing with things that have never happened before, there's yeah. a level of uncertainty. Yeah, because it's never happened before, you can't model. You can't model it, and so all you can really do is understand um, the risk reward of a of the f- sort of fertility of the potential of the direction of the magnitude, and so. I try to develop a sense of how the world is changing because, again, I think people, they, they don't know how to make sense of chaos. And it's like, you know, addressing the complexity of the world, you could say, well, there must be a God because only a God could, you know, understand and create and, and, and weave all this complexity together mm-hmm. as opposed to a Darwinian, you know, manifestation of, of uh, all kinds of factors that are hard to understand. Um, and so I think people are inherently, I think it's unarbitrageable, they're inherently unable to really understand change. So when you think you're investing in something that is not a regression of the mean, you know, goes up to this price to book, then down to that price to book, or whatever, um, there's a lot of uncertainty, and price is not the proper discounting of this new thing. It is merely a reflection of current liquidity. Yeah. Yep. So... So then the question is sizing according to what you think may happen relative to, with some duration, the risk reward of what could happen. Mm-hmm. And, um, and the thing is, if you have a lot of the same bets, then you're, you're increasing your risk dramatically mm-hmm. with short duration capital, no matter how right you are, because they can go up massively and then down massively. Yeah. And the human instinct is to give you more money if it goes up and take it away if you've lost. Because they're trying to make sense of the world. We've all seen that. Exactly. And that's just the way it works. So um, it's a really great question. But 
but there's definitely a tempering. There's a, there's a recognition of it's like you're 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 a cook. You're preparing a dish for a certain kind of audience to mm. how pleasing the, you know it'll be not only today but like almost every day. A combination of other things needed to be there for them to digest it. And different people have different you know tolerances and interests. Mm. Um, but but the the main premise here though is that. I say price is a liar, meaning price is not telling you the predictive, you know, what's going to happen very well, not nearly as well as people think. And so you have all this opportunity and all this risk inherent in the market, not knowing what's going to happen. Mm. Um, and my proof point is, you know, did five years ago in 09, could you, did the world imagine today? It's like, no way. No. And in 2004, could they imagine 09? Not even close. I mean, the financial bubble was really just really, I, I, that's when I started feeling it. Yeah. In 99, could you imagine 04 where you're just about to go into the peak of the housing bubble, you know, in tech? Like, so just work backwards every five years and you see 94, could you imagine 99? Like, no. No. So I, I would, would postulate that in 2014, you have no idea what 2019 is like. It will be extreme changes because liquidity doesn't, liquidity will have to change, positioning will change. Facts will emerge, et cetera. And so the way I look at it is, is, is uh, don't overrate the market as to what it knows. Understand that what the market is is current liquidity, a balancing as many buyers and as sellers. So understand that if you have some sort of edge relative to current liquidity, and if you have the right duration and the right you know, to either tolerance or recipe for how to hold these things, yeah. You have an exceptional chance to, to, to make money. You also have an exceptional chance to lose money totally against macro or, or bottom-up rationality, purely because liquidity can go completely against you. Yeah. So, so anyway, what, but I spent a lot of time trying to understand how, what's the probability of the world being different than the market expects, because that's going to happen. Mm -hmm. how, how will it be and when will it be and you know, what, what are the triggers? And you spend all this time trying to figure those things out. Wow, I think that was a really profound statement. What is the probability of the world being different to that that the market expects? And I think that's really the key to macro. <laughs> yeah. You know, because we don't live in a world of certainties. What you're looking for is the shifts, and it's the change of probabilities where all the money's to be made. It's not the eventual outcome. Well, pe people people focus on prices, right? They always they always say, okay, well, you know, where's Apple going to be next year? Where's gold? Where's copper going to be? And you're right. What John says there is, I mean, it's just so profound. The idea that you can make money from just handicapping where people are all on one side of the boat and you think there's a decent pathway that the other side of the boat's going to be where you need, that's where you make the big money. That's right. I mean, he mentions earlier in the interview about um, being a contrarian. Yeah. And he's saying, you know, don't be a contrarian for the sake of it. You need to be a contrarian when it makes sense to. And that's what he's getting at here is it's assessing when the probabilities are now skewed towards the market all being wrong. And not just being a dumbass about it and just saying, yeah, everybody's wrong because I'm right. Yeah, no, no, that's it. That's exactly it. And, and if you can, you, the, the great example, you know, you bring up San Druckenmiller and you go back to the famous George Soros bet against the Bank of England. I mean, everybody was on one side of the boat. Soros took a big swing. Well, actually, Stan took the big swing for him. Uh, and they made out like bandits. You know, he was a pig at that time. And we've just seen that with the Brexit vote, right? The same thing. Yeah, and that's one of the things that Kyle has been king of is the asymmetric bet. And that's kind of implicitly what they're talking about here is when there's an asymmetry that no probability has been priced in and it's the pricing in of those probabilities is where all the money's to be made. So, you know, it's the pricing in 
of heading towards a recession, for example, where the big moves happen. It's not in the recession itself. That's usually the bottom of the the trade anyway. Well, no, no, the beauty is you don't actually need to be right. You just need more people to come around to your way of thinking. You can be out before you're proven wrong or right. I've made a really good profit and let others who come in late. Absolutely right. It's so crucial. Absolutely right. Anyway. Yeah, let's get back to it um, because I know there's just so much more to come. I've backed into... Despite all the issues, the, how much of the problems that Americans have recognized? 2000, I remember when I started, the Americans were delusional. You know, they thought they owned the whole world. They thought everything was going to grow forever. You know, and then we had top of the market. We had the new 2000 election, which was an incredible event, right? No winner yeah. for a month. Yeah. Um, and then we've had a series of sort of travesties, you know, really by all forms of government. And now Americans recognize like it's not run very well and right they and they understand this like like kind of all the bad news is out and there's been massive change and so it's like uh it's like a company that's had a it's doing a massive turnaround over a long period of time but we're past the past the point and as much as you can say here all the bad things about it when you go to the competitors (laughs) europe japan whatever yeah em we're like my god we're so Prime to do really well. You're just telling me to just buy every anything with yield because it's well, all going lower. All right, okay. Let's stop right there. Now you heard Kyle there. Um, you know, Kyle said you're basically telling me to buy anything with yield because it's all going higher. And he said that you know this interview was October 2014, which was the beginning of the dollar rally and the beginning of the acceleration phase in the bond market. And it was a time when most people again were talking about Fed tightenings, Fed tightenings, right? And this was. This was someone sitting back and saying, okay, I'm listening to what everybody's saying. I'm taking the other side because I've got reasons for it. I have faith in my convictions and I make a very good investment case. And well, guess what? We all know what happened from that point on. And this was something you were talking about very aggressively at the time, this dollar bull market. Yeah. And what it did, how it caused inflation to collapse globally, the oil price collapse, and obviously yields collapse. And that was what John was referring to because there was going to be a mad grab for yield as inflation fell and he got it dead right. Yeah, and we, you know, we're still in that now. And and you know, I know from a recent conversation I have with John, he's still in that. He still sees that carrying on. But it just shows you when you get these trends right, you get these big trades right, they can go on literally for years. And also, what he did do is one of the key things, again, to investing is the knock-on effect. Because he saw the dollar rally yeah. and extrapolated that into falling yields because inflation is going to fall because the price of oil and commodities is going to fall. And that's the real secret. We talked before about the probability of outcomes. It's understanding how it flows through asset classes and how it develops over time is where you can make real money. Well, the beauty is, you know, the further away... Okay, so John sees the dollar as the centre peg of this, as you did, and and the trigger of it all. But the further away you get from that trade, the less crowded the trades are. You know, everyone's going, looking at the dollar, they go to oil. But you went to emerging market currencies and John went to emerging market debt. And there are places you go away from the crowd... And just kind of front run them and get yourself into a place where you know they're going to come eventually. Yeah. Although there is also a lesson in that, and I've learned it the hard way before, is don't overcomplicate stuff. Right. Because sometimes you try and put your hand around the top of your head to scratch your ear when you can just scratch it because it's next to your hand. <laughs> and you forget that. You kind of construct these complicated portfolios to express a view when really you want the dollar to go up. So, you know, there is a, there is a kind of a level of smartness you need to apply to that. But uh, knock-on effects is key. I'm glad I know now what you're doing and sitting in your office with your head around the head around the back of your head. But, uh, let's go back to Kyle and John. So, so, so I'm basically saying also that that um, GDP growth. So people are attracted to EM for this high GDP growth, but really simple GDP growth 
is overrated. Um, I mean, expanding plant, okay, the difference between Apple and Apple's, you know, Asian manufacturers, I mean, whose business would you rather own? You know, the ones who have to, you know, expand plant to, you know, very competitively make, you know, goods or the one who designs it, markets it, harvests most of the profit. Right. But the GDP of the country that has the manufacturers will grow faster but the risk they're it's taking not very productive to well it's just it's just it deserves a lower multiple it's yeah. much riskier but it gets it gets a lower multiple it's just, just it like does. Japan. It, 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 it does but but the point is as the you know we get older we have we have different talents skills abilities uh, ways of monetizing this in a way you can think of the whole world or America has having grown tremendously and a lot of the rest of the world has not grown that way. So EM is where America was, you know, 50 plus years ago, a lot of it. Yeah. I mean, they're in the, we need to grow by using cheap labor or building up plant right. and, you know, constructing a competitive reason for that. Um, whereas we're, we're way farther along just because of having a head start and having a lot of other policies that allow it. And so, We've had now this wave of globalization because of China entering the world. That's a one-off, never going to happen again. And we've had um, we've had uh, development of technology that's happening in a way that's very deflationary. I'd say it's positively deflationary. Yep. Unless you're one of the workers being displaced. Yep. And and you have all these people cyclically thinking the world's going to repeat what it did. This is the problem with the Fed. This is the problem with economists and most pe- most model-driven people. They keep expecting the past to repeat. And so when there's, when there's different variables, the different hedge fund managers are trying to have a fuzzy model that constantly changes, and part of it's always going to be fuzzy. You know, and you're using part information yeah. and part price. So when you, when you incorporate all of these thoughts, so I agree with many of the things you're saying, how do you position yourself for the next 12, 18 months? So I've, I've had this position for the last, say, six, seven months that I'm fully invested and fully hedged. So, okay. because I don't know, I don't know this year <laughs> that it would do this, right? For yes. until September, it was doing it in that small caps sold off and growth stocks sold off, but the indices didn't. Yeah. Anything safe, you know, didn't. Yeah. And treasuries done really well. So it was possible to believe it, but it didn't happen this year. Maybe it would happen next year. That wouldn't have worked. There's, I think, one other thing is I think the crisis was so was so positive in changing the delusions of America, mm. American business and boardrooms, it really changed the course of America, but it was overdue for it. Yeah. So now I look at, I'm so impressed with American companies and American business people. And I, I mean, I, yeah. and, and that's after spending you know, almost 20 years investing everywhere. Yeah. It's no contest. Yeah. I mean, it's no contest, but when the top guy is delusional and misallocating capital or lazy, it's different than when they're, oh my God, I gotta be, top of my game be focused yeah. yes so so i have this i have this view that most of the leading company not all but majority are in america okay like of what are, what are going to do well and it's an america that's well along in this reorganization expectations have been lowered yep. but american companies are going global in a way they didn't before the crisis so i look at i look at the s p as sort of world beaters that were focused at home that were a little delusional and now like, oh my God, like this is serious and this is how I'm going to grow and I got to do painful, you know, harder things. I got to be smarter. 
And I look at the rest of the world as having reasons not to do, go through that process yet, whether you're Japan or Europe or EM, where you just can't actually get the skills that manage them, et cetera. So, so fully invested means mostly long U.S. Yes. multinationals yes. And, and big. Well, it doesn't have to be. It could be oh, leaders. It could long be leaders. US in, leadership. It could be leaders in tech. It could okay. be leaders in, in in a lot of industries. And does hedged mean um, beta or alpha hedges? It means are both. They, are those short global? things like emerging markets? Short things like commodity equities? Different yeah. things. Short. Yeah. It's harder to short obviously bad companies because of all the hedge funds that are already short them, and the correlations that happen, um, but. Vol got so low that I decided in July to go to owning owning uh, puts yeah. instead of waging war with a bunch of different small positions. Yeah. But trying to formulate what's where is the leadership going to come from? In a way, I've said I've backed into something where I can now imagine the S and P trading more than twenty times earnings. Okay, so so there's another place that I want to jump in where where John's talking about you know I can imagine the S and P trading at twenty times earnings. I mean, there's so much to talk about from that last little piece and it sounds at face value as though john is a very u.s centric cheerleader it's a you know it's a rah-rah the u.s is is the greatest uh, the greatest place to be yeah but john is i think you're about to say is he was really negative on the u.s for a long time exactly. he thought it was exactly. a terrible place to get returns he loved asia and as as john's pointing out now something something's shifted he's seen the macro landscape change entirely well this this idea of being flexible and and being willing to look not only across asset classes, but around the world for the best ideas. Now, some people don't have the latitude to do that. You know, that makes it much harder. John has that global mandate and he can go where he sees the value. But even in, you know, if, you, if you're just a US investor, having the flexibility to, to move in and out of sectors, in and out of asset classes, it's so important to maintain that. And also, when you think of the, the construct that he's coming up with here in this conversation, it, you can see there's a long and a short yeah. So he thinks like a hedge fund manager. You know, how do I offset the risk of of one trade of being very negative in emerging markets, for example, or oil, or or uh, very bullish on bonds? Well, maybe because the U.S. will do better in that environment, better because of the stronger dollar, better because of the tech revolution going there, and all of the other aspects that John, you know, notices is going on in the U.S. versus elsewhere in the world. I think it's, it's really interesting. And, it's a key way to think about the long short portfolio idea. Well, as John puts it, I'm fully invested and fully hedged. You know, it's it's it sounds almost flippant, but it's such an important thing to understand. Because I think if rates are low, oh the dollar's strong. Yeah. Right. You think about it as a as an investor. Yeah. If you're losing on well, you're buying a dividend yield, right? Well, but well, and those yields are higher. You know, I think I think the yields are so high relative to you know Europe yeah. or, or Japan. Yeah. But I'm. But the closest model is the second half of the 90s is what I think can happen, where the U.S. is preeminent. Large companies do extremely well. Tech as well, but in a very qualitatively superior way to what tech was then. And I think the U.S. becomes the fascination of the world because, in a way, we did all these things that needed to be done. And then the corporations, the, 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 the stuff that they did and the stuff they didn't do, is going they're going to monetize yeah. in the future. So it's a lot of things just are a relative trade of what to be long and what to to short to take out your volatility and your risk. Yeah. In this case, with a rising dollar, a lot of things are gonna are not going to work. A lot of mar- marginal things are going to fail. Um, I think you're going to learn. Oh my God, that's not a good trade because of price showing you. But I think the best things have a chance of moving down in that liquidity crunch. And after that, when you think that's over, you want to buy. I think you want to buy basically the S and P. 
and you want to buy what you think are leading companies. The risk to take is more like tech or right. or or in or biotech or or even leading consumer any change anything that's leading change that's causing a leading change is where I'd put take my risk. And I don't think the SME is very risky, so you can take out a lot of that risk by shorting something else. Yeah. Um, that that's that's my conclusion. Okay. I think the other thing is that where we are in technology is costs of technology have fallen so much. You know, we've never been in this position before. Uh, the whole idea of like big data, we've never actually been able to harness the amount of information or data. What we're going to learn from process, being able to process it and using it is going to be extraordinary. You know, the, the, the efficiencies are going to be gained. So S&P has already got all-time high margins, totally unexpected. People keep kept thinking it was going to revert lower. My expectation is the revenue growth is not going to be fantastic because GDP is not going to be fantastic. Yeah. Share is going to be gained. Margins have a chance of being higher than you think. And global share. Yes, a global share. Yeah. And with, a, with a, well, a lot of the, anything pure technology doesn't really care what the rate is. You know, it's either the best and really useful. Right. It's not dependent on the, on the euro or, or dollar exchange rate. So I guess what I'm saying is I think, I think the world is, has to change from one kind of growth to another. And just because there's QE, you know, buying of putting cash in people's hands, it doesn't actually, you know, cause this change. Right. A lot of the change is really about a displacement of something that's meaningful in the economy with something that's a lot more efficient, whether it's labor or it's CapEx or whatever. You know, yeah. Uber is a good example relative to what was there before. It's just a rearranging right. with information, you know, combination that's really efficient for massive efficiency. But but a terrible thing for for cab drivers who haven't who don't change. So that's sort of happening more and more and more. Yeah. And I think in Silicon Valley, there's a winner take all um, reality. You know. People can compete for a niche that's evolving, and then someone wins it, and there's usually a number two, uh, but there's no value for anyone else. Hmm. And I think barriers to competition keep coming down around the world, and they're going to keep coming down. And with that, take Japan. If you're not willing to change at the rate that your competition is, you really have a lot more to lose than you used to. You don't have the same barriers. I think the upside on on these leading companies where things are changing is higher than is expected. And I think what technology will deliver in margin, in opportunity, in reach, it's just, it's really hard to be linear. You can't think linearly. You gotta think about what's gonna emerge and it's gonna accrete to the, the, the guys who cause it and the guys who can scale it before others. So I have this view that, that American companies are going to win more share than you expect because we change more, we change earlier, and I think that crisis was a fantastic thing, yeah. actually, because that because that was shared throughout the world, but really in a share throughout America. Mm. Oh my God, we have to change. The persistence of rationality since the crisis has impressed me. I now think it's going to go for a long time, and if the world doesn't grow that much, you're always in this not crisis, but this is not easy mode. So I, I end up having, a, I despair about Washington, but I'm, I've actually completely changed my view of, of, of what positive things are going to happen in America. And having investors around the world, I know there's no competition, really. So I think you, you have this opportunity to be short a number of things that are actually riskier than the thing you're long. Uh-huh. And then in a risk-off move, whether it's commodity equity um, or small caps or whatever, you can, uh, you can do quite well. Um, 
but I'm being, uh, I'm, I've got pretty good diversification. I'm in larger, larger to mid cap things, not, not many small cap. Um, I mean, I've, I have a few small caps, which have just been driven down. <laughs> like I, I just stopped like buying them or thinking about them because I, I knew too. the price was wherever, you know, wherever it was going to go. Wherever it was going to go. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that I, I could say that I'm, I, I could say that I'm probably too, too higher gross. Usually my gross ends at 200. But the the predictability of how it's moved and knowing that I have this downside, like if the market moved up or down a lot, I'd be fine because my puts either you know go away. Being short a lot of stock is where you can run into a you know real asymmetric problem. Yeah, problem. Yeah. Okay, I I keep jumping in here. Yeah, it's I, always you, isn't it? I know. I'm really sorry about that. I just I just enjoy listening to these guys. So no, you enjoy so, your own voice. <laughs> it's been said before, and it'll be said again. I'm sure. This this idea that John talked about here, he he got oil right, um, and he was right for a little while. Then he was wrong before he got really right, and that's something that really good investors can do. And poor investors get chased out of trades, or they take money off the table too soon. Yeah, I had a colleague who used to next to me when I was at uh, GLG running the hedge fund, and his expression was, "And thrice you sh- she ye shall be tested." And it was always the case. You put the trade on, you think it's going to work, then it doesn't work. And it goes, oh, that's painful. Then it works, then it doesn't work, and then finally it works. But it's always, it, for him, it was always three times you get tested. Right. But, but this this idea of constantly checking, not just what the price is doing, because you know, as John said in another interview, price is a liar. Sometimes price doesn't tell you what you need to know. Does the investment case that caused you to put the trade on, does it still hold up? And that's crucial. I mean, I talk about this a lot. Is that People have to do their own homework. Because if you have done your homework, you create your investment thesis, you can stick with it, you understand where you're wrong and why you're wrong, has something changed or not, and then it's down to, back to the beginning, trade sizing. If you're too big, you're going to get knocked out of the trade or you can't stomach the loss. If you've got it right and then it starts working, then you can press your bet. See, I I think this is one one of the best things that you can take away from the content on Real Vision is is just that when you've got a trade on the price may go against you and what you'll learn from listening to these really smart investors is you 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 have to know what you're doing you have to know why you're in it and you can't get talked around and and I just want to interrupt here and say Grant knows from experience being a gold complete <laughs> gold bull he's had to yeah. suffer a couple of years now of some I, miserable pain yeah that's that's very <laughs> no, it's, but you know it's funny we joke about it but it's so true because of course it is. you know I haven't been chased out of gold because my position size was okay and I checked the investment case and I haven't seen a reason for the impetus that gave me the, 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 the desire to own gold that hasn't gone for me. And this is part of something that I've talked about a lot before in the past as well, which is about time horizon. If your time horizon, your gold trade is 10 years, then you can't worry about what it does yeah. over two years, you know, because it's only a fifth of the time. You know, if it's going against you for 10 years, yeah, you've probably got it wrong. <laughs> but uh, but otherwise, if the time horizon is crucial and your investment horizon has to match your idea horizon, yeah. get those two right, it generally works a lot better. So, Greg, the first question that I have for you coming out of, you know, just that's 30 minutes packed full of knowledge and wisdom is that how, how does the retail investor, how does the average investor begin to even internalize and think about implementing anything that that uh, Kyle or, or John talked about in the, you know in the past thirty minutes because it's just so much there. Yeah, there is. I, I, but I think this is a big uh, a big part of Real Vision is is not necessarily 
trying to spoon feed people um, trading ideas, but more teach them how very smart, very successful money managers think. And look, here you have two of the best in the business. And, and as I said in the in the uh, in the commentary as we went through it, you know, Kyle's first question to John was very instructional to me. Now here's a guy um, with a great track record, widely acknowledged as one of the best hedge fund hedge fund managers in the world. And the first question straight in, hi, you know, good to see you. How do you size your positions? And that to me, as I said, is is so important in understanding that that if you get that right, uh, a lot of dominoes fall into place the right way. If you get that wrong, you're starting off on uh, on the defensive, and it's so it's it's a crucial thing to get right. And what struck me too is that John talked about how he 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 understands things from really from three angles. You think about the top down, the bottom up, and then from the risk manager perspective. And he elaborated on sort of the the quantitative side of that, um, and how he had to learn that, and, and that changed his view on on market structure. And also, he said that in 2009, he didn't even know what QE was. So the, the nimbleness to, to learn and adapt, I think it's just that, that was also evident to me in the interview. Yeah, it's, it's, it's crucial. I mean, this is, this is a large part of what we're trying to do here. It's the, you know, the old story about teach a man to fish or give a man a fish. And, and what we hope to do is teach people to fish instead of just handing them a fish for that, for that one juicy meal. And, and there was so much in that interview that if you listen to it carefully and you unpack it the right way, um, it'll teach you to be a great fisherman. Yeah. Well, I hope the listeners will be coming back to this time and time again because uh, there's a lot to tease out of there. But coming up next is our Things I Got Wrong segment where we speak with a market expert about an investing mistake they made and we try and get them to share those lessons they learned from that experience. And this week's guest is John Netto. Yeah, I I had the great pleasure to to interview John in uh, Santa Barbara. Um, Sorry, Santa Monica. I get my Santas mixed up. Um, Claus is the one that he's the one with the red suit, right? Yeah. You know, John. John's just such a passionate guy, so enthusiastic, and you know he lives and breathes this stuff. And, and it was it was so much fun sitting and talk to him and, and hearing that passion and that that hunger for knowledge come across. And, and I think uh, you know a lot of that comes from from mistakes that people made. So it was uh, it, it's great fun talking to him, and it's uh, it's fun listening in on the lessons he's learned from mistakes. Yeah, he, he was a great guy to speak with, and, and he had some fascinating comments about under preparing for an important Fed catalyst in 2015. So this week, I'm pleased to be joined by the Protean trader and author of The Global Macro Edge, Maximizing Return Per Unit of Risk, John Netto. John, it's great to have you on and welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Yes. Yeah, so, so back in January of this year, you, you gave an amazing interview on Real Vision. I, I thought it was great um, you know, about trading strategies, about the leveling of the playing field with billionaire traders, and even the innovative ways of looking at performance analysis and risk, and in particular, the Netto number. But I actually, I want to start with this idea of the protean trader. Now, I'll admit, I, I had to Google the word protean, but you know, it's such, I think it's such an appropriate term given your incredibly diverse and adaptive background. So why don't we start there? You know, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and the interesting things you're working on. My name is John Netto. I uh, am author of the Google Macro Edge, and I'm a cross-asset class trader. I'm my living from trading the markets. I uh, really, when you think about my background, it's, it's, the journey plays a big factor in, in, in how I am and how I trade the markets and who I am, having spent almost nine years in the Marine Corps, having spent, you know, m- much of my high school and adolescence as, as an odds maker, facilitating, you know, price and wagers on, on sporting events, um, all of these things, both the discipline, both the pension to take on risk, have, uh, have influenced who I am and, and what I do. I, again, I, I, trade, I trade the markets for a living. I live off my P&L and, and, wanted, and wrote the book. To, to share my experience and hopefully help others and, and, and learn a great deal from that process. You know, John, that's, um, that's, that's really interesting. And, and one of the great things about this segment is that we, you know, we try and talk to 
you know, traders, fund managers, and, and market experts about their experience and the lessons that they've learned through their through trading and investing. So, you know, can you tell us a story about a time you made an investing mistake and perhaps an important investing lesson you derived from this experience? Sure. But going back to 2015, this is a specific example I actually highlight in the book because in the book I had a journal that I basically took a $100,000 risk budget and over from, from from January 2010 up until the end of uh, 2015, so over a six-year time period, and, and generated over $3.1 million in P&L from that from that. $100,000 risk budget. Well, at the end of that, actually, the last quarter, I suffered my biggest drawdown. And I talk about this a little bit in the book, and I, and I provide some more detail on that here. And what had happened is I'd done a good job of trading the Fed and, and just understanding the message and the policy that had gone on in 2015 with the, with the FOMC, trading their, their economic releases um, around in terms of the SEP, the, the, the meetings that have every six weeks, et cetera. Well, come to October, um, October 28th or October 29th was a, was a meeting. And I thought that the, the Fed was going to actually downgrade some of their labor, um, the perspective of the labor market, given what had just happened recently. And up to that point in time, as the Fed was discussing policy, that this was kind of the last sacred cow, that the U.S. labor market was very strong and had grown you know, very robustly since 2009, and that that downgrade would, would actually lead to another leg higher in, in, in the five years and two years, and even, um, and even a rally higher in the euro and, and potentially gold as well. And so having, you know, been on a pretty nice run that year, I um, leveraged myself even more. And this came on the heels of actually going on a trip. And so I hadn't done as much preparation as I, as I, as I normally do before these events. And I rely heavily on my intuition and just my process. And I combine those two um, really to, to make what's been a very effective combination of, of process combined with intuition. And unfortunately um, for me and my position, I lost three to four months of gains. Uh, uh, at that point in time in the year, I was up close to $700,000 um, in 2015. And I lost 220 of that in about two minutes during that Fed release because I not only decided to press all of my profits that I'd have over the previous months, and I thought that upon release of that, when I did look at the statement and did see that the, the, the Fed had actually downgraded their labor um, assessment, that it was worth you know, adding to my position. Unfortunately, it was also embedded in that language was it a rate hike at the December meeting was all but certain. And having not done the preparation, having not, um, or at least having not done the preparation I normally did, and maybe being a little more complacent than I, than I was, um, I just simply took the wrong position and didn't factor in all the market position stuff that I normally did, et cetera. The bottom line is, I'm going to do a pretty substantive drawdown, and I could identify two or three different things um, that contributed to that. One, I didn't, um, I didn't do an assessment of myself to say, listen, you've been traveling, you haven't done as much preparation. That should be an automatic trigger that says, okay, you simply can't trade as much. It has to, you have to, in essence, put a quantitative score behind where you are in your emotional spectrum or where you are in the balance of your life. The second thing is that I didn't go through my, my normal contingency plan that, okay, if this comes out, how will you respond? And, and then grading this event in terms of, all right, what are the five most important things from this economic from this event, whether it be the market making new highs, a presidential election, the FOMC statement, whatever the event is, anything that can shift the market regime, I go through a process for that. Okay, and that process has been further enriched since that Fed meeting in 2015 in October. And so, those not identifying where I was in that emotional spectrum, not identifying that I hadn't done quite the total prep work, and just allowing the P and L of the year. 
to maybe put me in a more of a, a, a spot of complacency contributed to that outsized loss. And I didn't react fast enough to cut that off. I didn't react fast enough to make that happen. And that's, and that's what transpired. Yeah. Sounds like a, a perfect storm. I mean, um, if I was looking forward to vacation, I mean, I guess it's, it's understandable that maybe that would slip, but I, I want to drill down when you talk about your process and, and contingency plans leading into an event like this, you know, can you, can you add a little bit more detail or color to what that process might be like, or, you know, now after learning from that October, 2015 event, how you've carried forward that lesson? Sure. So I, I immediately following that event, the first thing, let me talk about specifically, again, I mentioned some of those positions. So I was long, you know, I was long gold. I was long two years. I was long five years. I was long the Euro. These were all things that I expected that with a downgrade of, of the labor market, um, that this would, this would all benefit from that. Obviously, when the Fed in essence cemented the labor hike, or the, the rate hike for the December meeting, which was only six weeks away, this caught me by surprise, this caught us by surprise, and all those positions not only declined, but declined rather precipitously. So that's, to provide you the details, I mean, each one of those chunks, you know, 40 or 50,000 a piece, you know, because they, I mean, if you look at a chart from October 28, 2015, you'll see markets that are, you know, the two years, the five years, old, et cetera. And they just fell down immensely. And the great part, the good part in that regard is that I did get out, even though I took a big loss, I didn't stay married to it too much longer. You know, like I was in there and literally within a few minutes I was done. And that actually, those positions, I lost, you know, like I'm saying 220,000 or so on that day but would have lost another half a million in the following five or six trading days. So it could have wiped out my guess for the entire year had I not, had I decided to like justify something to do something wrong. That being said, moving forward, here's, here's what I did to, to, to formalize this. And actually it made its way into the book, which is a great thing. And that is I built what I call a, a qualitative self-evaluation. And in a qualitative self-evaluation, I examined three things. I examined one, the preparation that I do, because for me, 70% of my success comes from the preparation. The other 30% is the execution, and, and, and intuition is a part of the execution. So, so I put up a score of, of a qualitative self-evaluation, and that consists of my preparation, my routine, and my focus. Okay, now the routine would address the travel aspect. All right, you know, in your routine, did you go to the gym yesterday like you normally do? Did you get the right amount of sleep? Did you um, eat the kind of diet you want? Have you, um, you know... All the things that you normally do that you encompass before a trade, before a trading day, where are you? Are you at the normal side of that or are you a little bit outstretched? Have you been traveling, um, et cetera? And then the focus, like I said, so it's um, preparation, routine, and focus. The focus is, am I thinking about something other than the market you know, or, or something that I normally think outside the market? So am I fighting with my wife? Is my, has my child been sick? Um, is, am I going through a, you know, a particularly stressful time that has me focused on something else. How are my finances? Um, am I able to pay my bills? You know, all the things that can detract from your focus on the market. And so specifically, because of the pain felt from that set event, I formalized and memorialized this qualitative self-evaluation process. I all, and, and that's outlined in chapter eight of the book. And that actually came from, a, the formalization of that came from this specific, very painful event. Um, and then I do a postmortem as well. I formalize the postmortem process and in the postmortem process, I asked myself, okay, how well, did I, how well did I stick to the plan of getting into positions when I wanted, you know, when I wanted to? Did I follow the plan that I laid out in my, in my game plan? Number two, how well did I manage the positions I was in, okay, based on my game plan? And number three, is how well did I adapt to what took place given the information? And 
And overall, those are, those are the lessons to put those things in place. And then, you know, 2016, um, following that, you know, I made back the money I lost on that in 2016, I had to have my second best trading year ever. So you see a result, mistakes were made, inefficiencies in the system, complacency existed. You know, I wasn't my sharpest. It cost me. It is what it is, but I adapted, I corrected it, and I moved on. You know, John, when I hear that, and, and just in doing this segment, one thing that really strikes me is just when you talk to the great traders and you talk to the, the fund managers, just the level of self-awareness and self-deconstruction and examination that goes into um, thorough and, and professional market speculation is, is just incredible. And I, I, you know, listening to you formalize this sort of qualitative um, self-evaluation, as you call it, uh, is tremendously enlightening. And I hope, you know, some of the listeners, uh, you know, start asking those same questions about themselves and, and, and incorporate it into their process. But uh, before we cap things off, can you let our listeners know where to find you in your work, uh, be it online or print? Sure. You can to follow me on Twitter. It's at John Meadow. And then my website is theproteantrader.com. And uh, the Global Macro Wedge can be ordered on Amazon on my website at theproteantrader.com. But follow me on Twitter. I'm always tweeting something out about the market at least once a day. Well, I think today I tweeted about the FOMC minutes. Um, so I'm, I try and try to nugget out. If, if not once a day, three or four times a week. Well, great, John. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks a lot, Aaron. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, uh, you know, I said going in, John was an enthusiastic and passionate guy, and I think that really came across there. And so you know, it's interesting that he recognizes that that emotion, that passion is something that he needs to be prepared to evaluate and make sure that doesn't bleed into decision he makes. And I think that's a very useful lesson for people to understand just how your emotions affect your positioning and your decisions you make. Right. And, and it really impressed me sort of the emotional self-awareness and the honesty that he has to confront his own emotions and then to then put it down in some sort of empirical or quantitative way to, to gauge himself in, in anticipation or leading up to any kind of uh, event such as the, the, the Fed. Uh, raising yeah. rates in yeah, 2015. We, we all get emotional about the Fed, that's for sure. Well, uh, I don't want to get too emotional, but that brings us to the end of this episode. But before we cap things off, just a quick legal disclaimer. Anything you heard on this episode should not be considered as trading advice. These are our opinions and the opinions of our contributors. So do your fundamental research, chart your technicals, place your stops, and trade responsibly. Uh, yeah, here, here. Now, next week, uh, we will be back with the usual long, short segment and things I got wrong. And in our feature documentary, we'll have an in-depth look on volatility, and we're going to seek to dispel some of the myths that are widely misunderstood about this asset class. And we're going to try and get to the root of what it truly means, not only for markets, but for life as well. Yeah, it's a complicated subject, but I, I think uh, make sure you tune in next week because I think this affects you a lot more than you realize. Uh, in the meantime, if you've got an interesting question about this week's show or anything else for that matter, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, send us an email or a voice note at podcast at realvision.com. And if you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe on iTunes and please leave us a review. That really helps us shoot up the rankings. It sure does. I'm not sure how that algorithm works, but it really does. So please take the time. If you want to keep up to date with the latest interviews, research publications and podcast episodes, then follow us on Twitter at RealVision. And you'll find us hanging out on Facebook and LinkedIn. Just search for us, RealVision. You can follow me on Twitter at TTMYGH. And you can follow me at Macrodidact. That's it from us. And we'll see you next week. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. 
Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.